I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Ian Parker, a practicing psychoanalyst working in South Manchester. His most recent book is Psychoanalysis, Clinic, and Context, Subjectivity, History, and Autobiography, published by Rutledge, 2019. For more, please visit his website, parkerian.com. That's P-A-R-K-E-R-I-A-N.com. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.com. Net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Your new book sounds like exactly what the field needs. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that I usually always ask people somewhere along the way is how they got into the field in the first place, but that your book has that in it. So everything's covered. Yeah, well, the book is is about that. It's about that uh, journey into psychoanalysis from originally being very sceptical about it and sceptical uh, particularly because I suppose a combination between two things. First, being trained in the discipline of psychology and already being suspicious of psychology as a discipline that reduces phenomena to the level of the individual and seeing so many uh, critical psychologists, I suppose in those days they weren't called critical psychologists, they were, they were radical psychologists or something of that kind, seeing so many of those colleagues turn to psychoanalysis as an alternative um, and then falling into it and becoming evangelistic about it so that the psychoanalysis turned into another kind of psychology. So I was allergic to psychoanalysis for a long time for that reason and the other reason is is that although i was training as a psychologist i never believed in psychology i always thought it was a disciplinary apparatus and the reason i thought that was because i was a marxist Um, i didn't think that psychology was the way to solve social problems or to address distress And so um, psychoanalysis, again, seemed to be another reductionist enterprise. So it did take a while to to, to shake from that and to to move in, to become interested in 
the things that psychoanalysis had to say. And 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 I, I suppose one thing that really made a difference was the emergence in England of Lacan. Although Lacan was appearing in film theory and literary theory and not in the clinical field, and that made it easier for the uh, the local franchise of the International Psychoanalytical Association to pretend that it didn't exist. Uh, Lacanian theory did obviously offer a different way of thinking about the human subject, not with wired in biological ages and stages and character development and all of that kind of thing that led to a normative, adaptive kind of psychoanalysis but a different way of thinking about the human subject in relation to language. And once you open that up, that possibility up, then you can start thinking about culture and history and transformations in subjectivity. So that, that eventually led me to, um, to become interested in psychoanalysis as a radical force. And that, that's what I describe in the book. I describe that journey um, I, into psychoanalysis, the process of, clinical training, uh, which is not easy, <laughs> as you know, and then the limitations of psychoanalysis, the ways in which psychoanalysts, Lacanians included, often tend to treat their approach as a worldview, as an approach that can be used to understand anything and everything inside the clinic and outside the clinic as the only way to understand the world. And so the book discusses the, the limitations of that, looking at queer theory and the engagement with Islam and uh, other, other Marxism, of course. Um, so so that's, that's where I end up with, a, with an attachment to psychoanalysis, but a scepticism about it and about its, about its limits, historically, culturally constituted limits. Yeah, and what do you think about this this drive that people seem to have to constantly turn everything into dogma? Like that's happening with Lacan now too, and it just baffles me that uh, people are trying to hold on to Lacanian ideas in this really like rigid dogmatic way and apply it to everything. We're seeing it a lot right now with what's happening with the this pandemic. People are trying to like explain everything. Uh, through the you know the hole in the reel, etc. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's right. I, I mean, I must admit that that in, in in the present crisis, the coronavirus crisis, um, I'm I'm finding some of the Lacanian stuff, um, the Lacanian Review online postings, for example. I'm finding some of that stuff more interesting than some of the uh, the leftist analysis. <laughs> uh, because some of the leftist analysis is is, is equally dogmatic, is is equally reduct reductive, um, which just simply blames it on capitalism too fast. And I think capitalism does have something to do with the emergence of of the virus and and its spread. But but some of the analyses, the Lacanian analyses, as as forms of cultural analysis, I I found quite compelling, um, and 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 especially that. I mean, you touched on it there, especially on that way of thinking about the relationship between the, the real, the imaginary and the symbolic. I, I think that kind of lens through which to understand 
uh, human relations and, and culture is is very very useful um, but I, I, it's a it's a heuristic you know it's 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 a, it's one way of, of opening up those questions and some of the most interesting postings on the on the Lacanian review online um, have actually been talking about Foucault and Agamben and Esposito rather than Lacan. That is, it's, it seems clear that in the turn to address politics, they've had to go beyond Lacan. I mean, that is, you need to go beyond Lacan and you need to integrate some of the insights that Lacan has about the nature of the human subject with other accounts of, of, of historical structures and, and um, political political state um, developments. Yeah, one of the things I really love, I love that your website is Parkerian. I love that uh, it's like, you know, my view at least is like, you know, psychoanalytic training formation is such a process, but eventually it's supposed to help us think for ourselves and I, I always like um, try not to define myself as a Lacanian or this or that I would say I guess Freudian because he kind of started the whole thing but I'm not a dogmatic Freudian either I just do you know I read all of these theorists and I kind of find my own way of thinking about things yeah yeah I, I mean of course the parkerian.com is a joke mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know there's no there's no parkerian line I wouldn't pretend there was. Uh, there's a kind of stitching together of of different approaches that I find useful, uh, which include include Lacan, uh, they include Marx, they include feminist theory, queer theory, post-colonial theory, um, kind of drawing on those different strands and trying to knot them together in in some way. Um, and the the Parkerian is is just one website which which includes details of my own publications but uh uh that's closely linked to the discourse unit which is a more academic research group that that we set up in manchester years and years ago 1990 1991 something like that which doesn't only address psychoanalysis but but addresses um marxism and feminism and um what you could loosely and inaccurately call post-structuralist theory, um, but basically for us boils down to Foucault. Would you like to talk a little bit about your journey, the journey that you outline in the book? Um, well, I've, I've, uh, I could talk about it a little bit further. I suppose an important um, turning point for me was realizing the Lacanian psychoanalysis was in some way linked to politics. Politics was always what I was interested in. Underneath it all, through my, all my work in critical psychology, all my academic work, underneath it all has been a concern with some kind of Marxist politics, Marxist critique, but Marxist politics, a praxis. Um, and that history of engagement with Marxism in the Lacanian tradition was an important attraction, uh, as as was the uptake in the English-speaking world, particularly in England, uh, through the work of Juliet Mitchell and Jacqueline Rose, for example, uh, by feminists. So um, that, that political valence 
to Lacanian theory was was extremely important. That that was one uh, turning point, uh, and it made it possible to to think about the, the possible intersections between psychoanalysis and Marxism and other kinds of radical politics. Uh, that that intrigued me. Now, of course, there's there's kind of like a, a a history to be settled there, a history to be addressed there, um, because most of the Lacanian um, core involvement was with the Maoist tradition rather than um, a more, what I would call a more open Marxism, uh, which is, for me, is, is what I identify with Trotskyism. I come from a Trotskyist background. I would still consider myself a Trotskyist. Um, and um, so the kind of fascination with China uh, and Mao and uh, kind of rather authoritarian uh, take on Marxism, which became for some of the groups, some of the Lacanian groups, I won't name them now, <laughs> became a kind of model for their own schools. That kind of authority, authoritarian state structure repelled me um, as, as being Stalinist. So, the, the one turning point was the engagement with 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 politics and with Marxism. I suppose another um, important turning point, and, and something we can we can talk about a bit more later, perhaps, um, was uh, encountering the work of David Pavon Cuellar, uh, who's a, an analyst, a, a political analyst, and a critical psychologist in Mexico, in Michoacan. Uh, who um, has been writing about this link between Marxism and Lacan in French for for many years? Uh, he he contacted me and uh, uh, I arranged for his book on Lacan and discourse to be published in the Lines of the Symbolic series, which is a, a Routledge series, and we've been in contact over the years um, and consider our. I consider him to, him to be a comrade. Uh, he's, he's someone who does come from the Maoist tradition, and we kind of like talk about that sometimes. But uh, we're working now on a book together that will be published in Spanish, uh, first of all, but and then published in English, I hope, uh, which is on psychoanalysis for the left, for the liberation movements. So explicitly thinking about what we can say about psychoanalysis that is helpful for the liberation movements and uh, getting them to take seriously psychoanalysis. And so that means cutting away a lot of the adaptive, traditional, mainstream kind of psychoanalysis that is dominant in the English-speaking world, in the International Psychoanalytical Association, um, and... Uh, returning to some of the most radical insights offered by Freud um, and then continued by other writers uh, in the Frankfurt School and, and then uh, then around Lacan. Yeah, maybe you could say more about psychoanalysis and this like liber liberatory ethic. Well, I think the key issue is whether you think of psychoanalysis as wanting to adapt uh, the individual ego to cope with the demands of civilization or whether you think of us uh, discovering our place as human subjects in something broader than the ego 
Um, and that, that, that phrase that's there in the 1933 lecture by Freud uh, in his new introductory lectures on psychoanalysis where, you know, where he says, you know, where it was, their ego shall be, I think is an absolutely crucial turning point. It's, it's, a, it's a point that either leads to an adaptive psychoanalysis which thinks about the ego as the center of the human being, each individual human being, and thinks about reinforcing that and driving back the forces of the id, where it was their ego shall be as the master of the self, um, the captain of the soul, uh, that kind of thing. It, it, it poses a choice between that way of thinking about the clinical work in psychoanalysis and and its political uh, application as well. Thinking about that in that way, or thinking about it in a broader way, which is opened up by Lacan, uh, which is where it was, where where the itness of of the human being is. There we find ourselves, and we we learn in analysis to find ourselves not inside the ego to reinforce the ego but to find ourselves in something broader wider more encompassing and once you think of things in that way then you're opening up the domain of subjectivity and the human subject as not only located in the individual self but in networks of social relations so you can start to connect with marxism then um who for Marx, uh, the human subject is an ensemble of social relations. That's where we should find ourselves. Find ourselves in the ensemble of social relations and in the and in the stuff that can't be spoken about that ensemble of social relations. That is what is unconscious to us, um, rather than enclosing ourselves in in the ego. So there is something political something liberating about thinking of the human subject in that kind of way and it opens us up to networks of solidarity and action and an engagement with otherness that um, enables us to uh, to engage in a more positive constructive way with feminism but also with post-colonial theory rather than treat this it as something barbaric and other that needs to be conquered and dominated, we think of ourselves as part of the world, part of the the variety of what it is to be human. Yeah, and I really appreciate that you're you're like you said you're going outside of Europe and you're talking about uh, Japan and Brazil and Islam and you know you're you're really broadening the scope. Well, it's, it's something. It's something that. Uh, discussions with uh, analysts around the world helped me with and I suppose I was very privileged still to be working in a psychology department and in a psychology department that was allowing me to to do this work work critical psychology work and, and also engage with psychoanalysis but enabled me to travel enabled me to travel um, and meet different different but people coming from different traditions from around the world the japanese analysts who thought of lacanian psychoanalysis as the deepest way of connecting with japanese buddhism um the brazilians who thought of lacanian 
psychoanalysis as the the best way to to connect with indigenous traditions um and and again with david in mexico uh who persuaded me that i shouldn't be so hostile about uh, religion um i shouldn't treat religion as as a irrational force to be defeated <laughs> i was brought up as an atheist so this is very difficult for me um but but instead to think about uh, the importance of liberation theology as a radical force uh, so that that kind of pluralism um it, it i think also was very useful in in thinking about the pluralism of lacanian psychoanalysis itself i mean something goes back to something that you mentioned earlier which is that you know that there isn't there isn't one lacanian uh, kind of orthodoxy there should not be one lacanian orthodoxy uh, and maybe sometimes we don't call ourselves lacanians sometimes we call ourselves freudians or sometimes we don't use that term at all as we as we encounter lacan i think each of us in our training or in our academic work uh trace our own path through the enigmatic contradictory statements by lacan um and and discover ourselves there you know where where it was uh there there we shall be uh but we have to find ourselves in in the different constellations of of, of theories and practices that that uh, enables us to speak yeah i was trained as a psychologist originally as well and i mean we literally read one paper by freud uh, in the entire like five six year program and I didn't even encounter Lacan until I moved to New York after I'd already finished my degree yeah psychology is a very uh, limiting enclosed uh, space isn't it it's a very enclosed practice um, yeah we had uh, maybe one lecture or maybe two lectures on on Freud in our in our undergraduate degree and uh yeah it was uh, freud is is unscientific um he's out of date um it's like seemed like a lot of psychologists that we were studying were dead but freud was deader than all of them um and so you know we we had to learn to to put that aside very quickly um and i suppose what what kept me attached or kept me uh, linked to the possibility that psychoanalysis could be different um, was partly through uh, some of the radical psychology engagements with psychoanalysis through the Freudo-Marxism tradition. I considered myself when I was an undergraduate to be a Reichian, for example, <laughs> when, when eventually I became interested in psychoanalysis. Um, I was really into Wilhelm Reich. Uh, I thought that was the way to go. Um, I, I loved Reich, and and I, I saw the sex poll work that that he engaged in in Germany, Austria, as as really liberating. Uh, that uh, kind of understanding of the repression of sexuality uh, by the nuclear family, uh, the link between that repression and the apparatuses of the capitalist state. The oppression of women and uh, young 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 people's sexuality uh, as 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 being really important, and saw that sex poll tradition in the work of Wilhelm Reich as really liberating. So I did think of myself as being a Reichian, 
so that 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 was something that that kept me kind of like connected in some way in, in with psychoanalysis and intrigued by psychoanalysis even though I, I i thought it would be dangerous to go down that path um and the other thing that that was really important was the alternative approaches in psychology uh around qualitative research um against the laboratory experimental quantification of human behavior that turns us into objects, qualitative research interviewing and, and that kind of thing. And particularly the turn to discourse, the understanding of the importance of discourse in human action as an alternative strand in psychology was, was what, first of all, what kept me in psychology. And I did my PhD on the, the, the turn to discourse and the turn to qualitative research uh, inside psychology and the connection between that and the debates in structuralism and post-structuralism. So in my PhD thesis, uh, I, I talked about Foucault and Derrida and Lacan. I had a chapter on Lacan in, in, in my thesis. Um, but th that, that opening within psychology uh, was, was something that was very important. It, 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 it enabled me then to take Lacan seriously uh, 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 and, and to take seriously in particular the way that he understood the relation between the subject and language. That is the work of discourse around us and, and, and inside us. Yeah, so psychology is really a problem, um, but, but the spaces that can be opened up inside psychology can can be liberating to people and can lead people to connect with other approaches. And that's why alongside my psychoanalytic work, I, I run the uh, uh, Concepts for Critical Psychology series for Routledge. And we publish um, really some fantastic little books there, some of them about Lacan, some of them about Deleuze, some of them about queer theory, other approaches. Um, but but that, that variety of different critical approaches opens up a different field of thinking about psychology and breaking from psychology. The most important thing being that you don't try to improve psychology, but you turn against it. Instead of looking at the world through the lens of psychology, using the gaze of psychology to categorize people and understand people, you turn around and you look at psychology and look at what the psychologists are doing and think about psychology as part of the psi complex, part of an apparatus of regulation and surveillance and incitement to speak. And of course, then that raises all kinds of questions about what you're doing with psychoanalysis when psychoanalysis becomes itself tangled up with the psi complex. Yeah, Patricia Gerovici has a great book, uh, The Puerto Rican Syndrome, and in it she kind of outlines, you know, the relationship between psychology and the military and the government and, yeah. like, its role in pathologizing people. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really great. Uh, I, I, I really like her work. I like her work on, on, on the Puerto Rican Syndrome, and I, I like her work on trans. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a real um, useful critique of the normative adaptive role of psychology, but also the, 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 the way in which psychoanalysis sometimes colludes with that. And, and in her work, her work on trans, uh, in particular, the way that psychoanalysis colludes with psychology, 
in defining what man and woman is as fixed essences and make, making people conform to those as their identities. You know, where it was that ego shall be in the, in the normative, adaptive forms of psychoanalysis, you've got to be a male ego or a female ego. You know, whatever they else they read about psychoanalysis, they can't let go of, of that binary. Um, and that's what uh, Patricia Gerovici really unsettles and disturbs and opens up something more authentically psychoanalytic, more authentically Lacanian, in my view. Yeah, absolutely, because that's one of the things that I still get like very frustrated with is when people get really stuck on that that binary in particular, that the what the man and woman are, and that happens a lot still. <laughs> sure, sure, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I think the the understanding that Lacan gives us of position of man and position of woman in uh, Encore uh, Seminar 20 is, is so useful in that respect, but so often it's misunderstood. It, it's so often uh, incorporated, recuperated, absorbed and neutralized, turned into something which it is not, um, turned into an account of, of, of maleness and femaleness, of masculinity and femininity, uh, when in fact, as I read it, uh, that that account that Lacan gives of sexuation in Seminar 20 is a different way of thinking about position of man and position of woman, which is not at all necessarily linked with biological maleness and femaleness and not necessarily linked with uh, gender normative accounts of masculinity and femininity. It's a quite different axis of difference, which is uh, so useful so useful clinically um, and, and so useful um, politically as well in, in opening up these questions about LGBTQ stuff. Yeah, I mean, that happens so often with Lacan and Freud. I always try to encourage people to just go read them directly instead of everyone's accounts of them sometimes because so many so many times you read these accounts and then when you read the original texts, it's like not at all what, what I get out of it, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so interesting the way that the uh, the political context impacts on psychoanalysis and makes it shift. Uh, I mean, we know that in the case of psychiatry and psychology. We know, for example, well, we know, for example, that um, homosexuality was seen as a disorder by psychiatry until 1973, when they removed it from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Um, and, and what's so important about that, uh, that shift in 1973 it was that it was through a vote. It was through a vote <laughs> by psychiatrists. It wasn't through medical evidence or uh, empirical studies or, or the weight of empirical studies or, or anything like that. No, it was a political campaign, a political campaign to demand that psychiatry shifted. And I think we've we've seen a similar shift uh, in some of the Lacanian groups as well. Uh, we have some of the Lacanian traditions today. Uh, took a while to break from the normative idea of marriage between a man and a woman, particularly in France. I mean, we could see it um, in some of the groups around Jacqueline Millet, 
for example, where quite a few of the leading figures were insisting that there is this binary, a necessary binary between man and woman, and were interpreting that in a very normative way. And they were writing very critical things about gay marriage in, in France. Um, but they shifted. They shifted under the impact of LGBTQ uh, movements, uh, queer theory, I think, particular, and in some of the recent journals, uh, journal special issues published by the Millerians in Britain, have been devoted to queer theory, uh, including interviews with Judith Butler. Uh, well, now, Judith Butler is not a Lacanian. Uh, she's actually in analysis with an IPA analyst. Um, but but she opens up those questions and has uh, the impact of the of queer theory and the queer political movement has evidently had an effect on the Lacanians and shifted them. Not all of them. You know, some of the analysts around uh, Charles Mailman are still homophobic and uh, um, you know how long it'll take for them to change. I don't know. But but but. The mainstream Lacanians now, I think, have shifted, and and it's a political movement that we have to be involved in if we're going to enable those kinds of shifts. What do you think about this narrative or argument of like psychoanalysis and politics don't go together? You can't comment on it. Um, that psychoanalysis is not political because in my the institute where I went to, I mean, it was like you were not supposed to mix these two, which I I just I don't know I can't understand it. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, most of the psychoanalysts um, before the rise of fascism in Europe were connected in some way with uh, the socialist movements. Um, many of them were members of socialist parties or communist parties in Germany and Hungary and uh, Austria. Um, Freud himself was a little skeptical about that, but was, you know, kind of like t to the left, left liberal in some kind of way. And um you know, his, his speech in, in Budapest in 1919, where he called for psychoanalysis to be made available, along with uh, welfare services, free, free psychoanalysis. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful, you know, kind of hidden tradition of work that's been uncovered by uh, Elizabeth Danto in her book, Freud's Free Clinics. But, but, but those engagements were engagements with politics. And, and Freud... As Elizabeth Danto tells us in her book, Freud's Free Clinics, um, Freud did actively support Wilhelm Reich uh, in his work there uh, for the sex poll clinics. Uh, you know, there, there, there was a split later between Freud and Reich, yes, um, but Freud was, was in favour of that political intervention. And I think we should see it as a political intervention. Uh, and we can we can trace that through to the ways in which many of the psychoanalysts in Latin America, in particular, uh, have, have been have had have to engage in politics in order to understand the the kind the, the link between repression and oppression, the link between repression psychoanalytically understood and political oppression. Uh, the ways in which state structures and family structures and so on uh, impact impact on 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 individual subjects. Yeah, uh, I think psychoanalysis is, is is politics, 
I mean, even if you look at um, books like Robert Lindner's book, The 50-Minute Hour, that was so influential in America in uh, popularizing psychoanalysis, you know, he's, he's got these little case studies in The 50-Minute Hour. I think it was published in 1952. So that's kind of like when McCarthyism was, was around. And you, you read the Robert Lindner book, um, and Robert Lindner is clearly a social democrat of some kind. He's involved in chairing anti-racist meetings. This is something that comes up in the clinical material that he discusses in one of the cases. Um, and I think it's no... No accident, as they say, when there's no obvious connection. <laughs> but OK, I think there's, it's no accident that in that little book of case studies published in 1952, you have the case of a fascist and you have the case of a communist uh, alongside the other the other case studies. Uh, there's clearly an interest and engagement in politics. And it's as psychoanalysis becomes crystallized into a bureaucratic apparatus. And I think, again, as psychoanalysis uh, starts to crawl, maybe that's a bit harsh, as psychoanalysis tries to make itself acceptable to the psychiatrists and the psychologists, that it becomes more and more adaptive and normative and conservative, and it thinks that the best way to show that it's loyal to its society is is to be anti-political is to not speak about politics it's one of the signs of a peculiarly political conservative conservative political stance that psychoanalysis takes uh, and when it says that it's not political it's just not true it's made a choice about the particular kind of politics it wants to ally itself with uh, we some of us are making an alliance with a different kind of politics, a politics that wants to change the world instead of a politics that wants to keep the world the way it is. Yeah, that's really well put. Really well put. Um, what do you think about, like, in South America, psychoanalysis is thriving. What do you think about, like, uh, the place of psychoanalysis and how popular it is or how much more it's working in, like, certain areas of the world versus others? Do you think it's that kind of alignment? Yeah, well, I, I think it's something to do with the um, diaspora of psychoanalysis, the forced diaspora. You know, I think it, it is the case that uh, psychoanalysis from its earliest days wanted to make international links. You can see that in the, in the letters from Freud to different analysts around the world. Um, the very early on, there were translations of Freud's writings and other psychoanalytic writings into different languages. And psychoanalysis already in a way um, became a kind of politics that transcended national boundaries questioned national allegiances questioned national identity it's, it's a very nice point which is made by uh, eric santner in one of his books where he, he says you know the the task of psychoanalysis is not to make yourself feel at home but precisely to come to terms with not being at home um, and it reflects that 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 not being at home uh, reflects something of the trajectory of psychoanalysis to become to become an international an international movement uh, to speak of, 
of, of the human subject in its all its all its variety from around the world. Now that that diaspora was then forced forced by the rise of fascism, and many of the psychoanalysts had to flee. Some of them fled to Britain. Some of them fled to United States, and of course. Many of them fled to to Latin America, um, and so you have the implantation of psychoanalysis there, and the the development of different traditions of, of psychoanalysis. Uh, it, it 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 is quite amazing to, to 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 be in Argentina or Brazil, I suppose particularly in Argentina, uh, where psychoanalysis is is such a pervasive force in in the in the political imagination. Uh, uh, articles in newspapers, editorials in newspapers written by psychoanalysts, uh, and 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 that has its own dangers as well. I mean, I remember being at a psychology conference in uh, Santiago de Chile uh, in 1993, I think it was, um, and uh, I, I was citing um, kind of statement by Erica Berman in her book Deconstructing Developmental Psychology where she's uh, she refers to psychoanalysis as the repressed other of psychology psychoanalysis is something that psychology can't bear it 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 shuts it out uh, psychoanalysis speaks of desire and the unconscious and the things that can't be tamed um, and psychology it keeps psychoanalysis at bay. So psychoanalysis is the repressed other of psychology. Um, and I kind of cited this in this conference in Santiago, and um, a psychologist from Buenos Aires got up, which is absolutely apoplectic. She said, my God, you know, my, my psychology department is controlled by Lacanians. You know, they rule it with a rod of iron. They're as bad as the behaviorists in other <laughs> psychology departments. <laughs> so please, God, don't don't treat the Lacanians as necessarily uh, a progressive, liberatory force. And that kind of that 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 struck home. Um, and there is a danger that when psychoanalysis becomes mainstream, psychoanalysis itself can be tempted to be part of the apparatus of power and to kind of peddle its own normative messages in order to um, maintain the power and status and privilege of the analysts who are speaking about the rest of us. That really is a danger. We have to think of psychoanalysis as a marginal force, as something which is on the edges, which something which understands something about the nature of society because it looks at things from the grassroots, from the base, rather than from the top. And in that sense, in a curious, paradoxical way, psychoanalysis is a kind of standpoint, kind of standpoint theory. It, it, it links in some way with the feminist standpoint theories, uh, because psychoanalysis speaks of something that is forbidden in the, in the public realm. It speaks of desire. It speaks of what cannot be spoken uh, in in popular discourse. It's marginal at the edge. It was not. It was nicely. Sorry, I'm going on about this, but just no, it's say, great. Okay, uh, is is when we were talking about uh, psychoanalysis and the uh, implantation of Freudian theory in Japan, Japan with Japanese psychoanalysts. Um, 
and the problem that psychoanalysis is in some way European, one of the Japanese analysts turned around and said to me, well, is it the case that Freud was European? <laughs> a very good question. Freud, yeah, sure, he was European, but he was kind of at the edge of what it was to be European uh, by virtue of being a Jew, being excluded, being marginalized. He had to see things in a different way and to notice something about the way that mainstream culture operated and the way that it marginalized so many voices. He saw something of that and, and, and that marginal, margin, marginality of psychoanalysis is, is something that we, we need to, to keep hold of, to value. Yeah, that's great. Um, the other thing I want to make sure to ask you about, because you wrote the book on it, is the Lacanian discourse analysis. Because, like I said, I didn't discover Lacan until after I'd already finished all of my schooling. And uh, I only came across Lacanian discourse analysis uh, recently when I read Robert Bashar's book on decolonial psychoanalysis, because he uses it a lot. And it's so interesting to me, and I don't know uh, enough about it yet. So would you mind talking about it a little bit? Um, yeah, I suppose this is a more kind of like um, ac academic, um, kind of critical, psychological kind of aspect of my work. Um, but but again, yes, then again, there's a link with politics. Um, but Lacanian discourse analysis uh, emerged as a kind of counterweight to something that was happening inside critical psychology. Um, not only inside critical psychology, but also in sociology as well, a kind of tradition of work that was emerging called psychosocial studies. Now, a lot of the psychosocial studies people wanted to engage with psychoanalysis, but the kind of psychoanalysis they were engaging with was mainly, when it came down to it, Kleinian, drawing on the work of Melanie Klein. That is quite a reductive, internalist, um, psychologized version of psychoanalysis. Uh, and so what they meant by psychosocial studies was the link between political, cultural structures, discourses, and what was going on inside the individual in terms of uh, particular kinds of instincts and drives and attachments and so on. And some of those psychosocial studies people were extremely attached, very, very attached to Kleinian, Kleinian theory. So Lacanian discourse analysis emerged as a kind of counterweight to that tradition in psychosocial studies in order to answer the question, what kind of subject is presupposed by discourse analysis? That is, if discourse analysis is an approach that looks at the work of language and the uh, construction of action and experience through discourse, what kind of human subject is presupposed by that, that it's not psychology, it's not the psychological individual, but it's a different kind of subject. And I think the answer is pretty obvious when you think about it. The answer is the Lacanian subject. It's the Lacanian subject that is presupposed by 
by discourse analysis. And so Lacanian discourse analysis was an attempt to study discourse in such a way as to emphasize the unpredictable, uh, erratic, chaotic um, elements of discourse, as well as the normative uh, kind of predictable aspects of discourse. Discourse analysis isn't a kind of approach that tries to predict what human behavior will be like, but rather Lacanian discourse is an approach that tracks the eruption of the human subject in language and the, the shifts and breaks and um, political political um, eruption that, that happens inside discourse. So Lacanian discourse analysis pits itself against the Kleinian kind of uh, uh, psychosocial studies. And you can see signs of this in some of the debates in psychosocial studies where the Kleinian psychosocial studies people refer to psychosocial studies with a hyphen, that is psycho-social studies, which I think actually exemplifies all of the problems that we were trying to draw attention to, whereas our attachment to psychosocial studies is of psychosocial studies without the hyphen. Lacanian discourse analysis is a authentically uh, non-dualist, non-binary uh, account of the immersion of the human subject in discourse and the work of, of, the, of the constitution and the the constitution of the human subject and the uh, the, the the speech of the human subject in discourse and the transformations in discourse that 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 subject makes possible. That's what it is. I really, I mean, I really found it so fascinating because, you know, of course, I work with the concepts, I work with them in theory and in praxis, but to see it like broken down into these structures and like the way you like um, implant the different language in different sections and get these different results is like so fascinating to see it all broken down. Like it works all the way down to that level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the book that I co edited with, with David Pavon Cuellar. Uh, was was uh, first published in Spanish. It was published in Latin America and then published in English. Um, and that, that that was very important to us that that we published it almost simultaneously in those two languages. Uh, but it's really it's really been the work of David David Pavon Cuellar uh, that's been most important to the development of Lacanian discourse analysis. Oh, great. He, you know, well, maybe more, you can more. put me in touch with him. Uh, <laughs> I can talk to him too. <laughs> I will put you in touch with David. I'm sure he'd be delighted to speak to you from Morelia, where he's uh, trapped there in uh, in his little house in Calle Primero de Mayo. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to be sure to talk about? Um, what else is there to talk about? Uh, well, there's so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the you know there's the, the I suppose the the book on psychoanalysis, which is there published by Routledge, is the account of my journey through psychoanalysis. Um, so we're talking about psychoanalysis now, and that's recently been supplemented by um, another book published this year by Routledge called Psychology Through Critical Autoethnography, which is focusing more on the discipline of psychology. So there isn't so much psychoanalysis in the psychology book, 
um, psychology through critical autoethnography, but it's more about this opening to different kinds of approach, qualitative research, and also the way that psychology operates as a normative disciplinary apparatus. So I suppose there you have the influence of Foucault in the book, in the narrative of the book, rather than Lacan, as in the in the psychoanalysis clinic and context book. Um, and I, I hope to supplement that with a third book, um, kind of autobiographical book on politics, my journey through politics, Trotskyism, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but as I said earlier, the, 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 the thing that I'm working on at the moment, which is taking up my time, is the book jointly with David Pavon Cuellar, uh, which is called Psychoanalysis, Critical Psychology for the Liberation Movements. Um, and in that book, uh, we're just at the point where I've written my 30,000 words. I wrote a, a paper, which I sent to David. He kind of elaborated on that. He sent it back to me. Uh, so I've been working on it now. Um, and what we do is we focus on four fundamental concepts of psychoanalysis <laughs> that is the unconscious repetition drive and transference um and it's kind of lacanian if you know what lacan is talking about but it's written in such a way as to be more open and accessible to people who've also come through different engagements with psychoanalysis and also for people who know nothing about psychoanalysis at all what we're thinking about at the moment um and and i'm not sure whether this is going to work and and i don't know what your thoughts are about this i'd like to hear your reaction to this is that we have the narrative of the book uh, organized around these four concepts um uh, but we're wondering whether to insert some little case studies um, maybe one or two hundred words each, just to illustrate key concepts um, and the way that it works in practice. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. It's a real risk whether to do this, whether it would make the psychoanalysis more real as a clinical practice, uh, or whether it would be in itself colonizing because we would be adapting cases that we already know from our own work um, and uh, uh, reconfiguring them in some way to make them uh, fit with a political narrative. I, I really don't know whether this is a good idea or not. What do you think? Yeah, I know. I'm very ambivalent about case studies because on the one hand, I mean, I think it's great that you're writing the book in such a way that people coming from other fields or or from non-Lacanian psychoanalysis can still understand it. I try to write in that way, too, because I think that is so important. Um, because otherwise, we're just talking to ourselves. It's like tiny group all the time, you know. Um, and with case studies, it can help people kind of see what you're saying in a different way. Um so it could be really like illuminating in that way, but also they can be so reductive. So I don't, it's really hard to say. It's uh, I'm very ambivalent about case studies. Yes, yeah, me too. I mean, when I did my training, of course, I had to write case studies, I had to deliver papers, clinical cases, and I really disliked it. Uh, I really felt uncomfortable with it. I thought I was betraying what had gone on in the analysis that I was describing. 
And uh, I notice when I listen to clinical case studies today, I find them intriguing, um, but they work as little just so tales. They work as little anecdotes, really. Um, and uh, you can see the audience settle and relax once the once the speaker has gone through some of the theoretical material and starts talking about the case. And I find that quite worrying uh, in itself. You know, they relax into the narrative as if they're really there listening to what really happened, as if they're listening to what the analysand really said, when actually nothing of the kind is happening. You're having uh, hours and hours and hours and hours of clinical engagement condensed into a narrative that is produced by the analyst. It's the analyst's understanding of what is going on that is presented in the clinical case presentations. I've, I've written about this uh, in uh, a journal, uh, one, the Irish journal, uh, Lacuna, um, against clinical case presentations. And I think it really is a problem. Really, uh, on the one hand, as you say, it illuminates some theoretical issues in some way. It, it, it helps people have a way into psychoanalysis, but I think it's really misleading. Uh, uh, and uh, the truth, the truth that's spoken in psychoanalysis disappears in the clinical case presentation. It's not there, but but they pretend that it's there and they pretend that they have access to it. Yeah, it's like too neat. <laughs> absolutely too neat. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Ian Parker, a psychoanalyst practicing in South Manchester. For more, please visit his website, parkerian.com. That's P-A-R-K-E-R-I-A-N.com. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.com. Net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. And now, Dislocation by Carl Abrahamson from the album The Larval Stage of a Bookworm. Thank <laughs> you.
Dislocation, disengagement, dissociation, disruption, distance, disintegration, dispossession. All good things, emblematic of a light existence, making freedom of choice not only possible but also implemented by mere association. Automatically and audaciously adventurous. Spinning freely, untied to any pegs or nails or bolts other than the merely biological. But always registering, paying attention to detail and destiny, documenting on the go. This is not a Zen trip. Not a blotting out, not a negation. It's a total and sensual indulgence in life. Any attempts at compartmentalization, comfort, complacency must be uprooted. Roughing it carries greater potential than easing it. Sky high and unnatural state, a constructed space. Is this where we mutate? Locked into a metal tube, floating in between heaven and earth? What do we essentially experience? Bad air, bacteria, boredom. That said, the potential for in-betweenness is massive. And these opportunities should be used to further the causes of more of the same. Perpetually sky high. To accentuate the awareness of the tube as a giant phallus. And we are all little sperm waiting to impregnate the womb of the destination. But even that is not a landing proper. It is a stopover in utero, in potentia, now boarding.